How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at microsoft.com slash AI for all. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the Gabby Ree Show, where everything is an experiment. I was really struck by the fact that almost one in four boys, 23% at K-12 age, have been diagnosed with a developmental disability in the U.S. And at that point, you have to stop and say, do we really think that one in four of our boys are developmentally disabled? Or do we think there's something in the system? Is it, could it possibly be that the system's failing them rather than that they're failing in the system? It looks like with the many fewer studies that of course have been done on the other side that it's true for boys in subjects like English to be taught by a male teacher. So there is some evidence that having a male teacher improves the performance of boys in English and doesn't in, in any way affect that of girls. Because again, a bit against the grain, a bit against some of the biology, etc. And just speaking perfectly anecdotally, there is no doubt in my mind that I would not have been able to fall in love with the metaphysical poetry of John Donne if my teacher hadn't been Mr. Wyatt, who was a grizzled Korean War veteran, who would have us in, he'd have working class 16 year old boys in tears reading metaphysical poetry from 400 years ago. That's a tough thing to do. And I've no doubt in my mind that my love of words and of writing was hugely affected by the fact that, it, that a man was teaching me to do it. It's not to say it couldn't have been a woman. And I actually had this quote, I think it's in the book from J.F. Roxburgh, who was the headmaster of Stowe School in England. A public, uh, this is 100 years old, this quote. He said, I'm trying to turn out men who will be acceptable at a dance and invaluable in a shipwreck. And someone asked me the other day, could you update that? I said, actually, I try. And I thought, no, actually, that's everybody knows what that phrase means. Acceptable at a dance means I've learned how to conduct myself well in society. I know how to treat women. I know how to behave. I know what to say, what not to say. I know how to take no for an answer graciously. I know how to, to dance. But also, if the ship starts sinking, what if the equivalent is, I know what to do then too. And so I still think that captures a version of masculinity, albeit 100 years old, that is, that is very important. But it's mature masculinity that we're after, not non-toxic. Not non because then you're defining masculinity against toxicity rather than in a positive way. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Richard Reeves. He works at the Brookings Institute, and he has a new book out called Of Boys and Men. I really was looking forward to this conversation because I, I feel like it's important. And this is really discussing and diving in with data and statistics about how our men and boys are really suffering. And I know you could be rolling your eyes, but I personally benefited from this empowerment for girls and women. I went to school on an athletic scholarship. Title IX is beyond in my wheelhouse. I have three daughters, so I'm, I'm so for women, but not at the cost, and it doesn't have to be, of men. And, and I think this is where sometimes culturally we have this conversation, and it almost turned 
from this movement of equality for women to thinking that in order for women to be successful, that men couldn't be. And that's not the case. It's just getting to redefine things because it's, I think it'll impact all of us culturally. And this, if we're really interested in humanity, then these conversations, we need to have them because you'll see that more and more men are committing suicide. They're saying that they feel useless and worthless. The homelessness situation, the amount of men in jail. And you know how easy it is for us as a culture just to throw around the term toxic masculinity. The word masculinity shouldn't have this word in front of it for everything that seems to be masculine. It's unfair. And Richard really makes a beautiful distinction between, you know, immature and mature masculinity. And what are we doing to help in this changing world, right? Our education system, our labor system, and our home life is very, very different. And how do we create a new script to give men and boys so that they can feel productive and like they're participating. So for example, in education, we're not even, you know, we have very few male educators. And so how do we communicate and reframe some of these professions like education, psychology, as something that men can do? Because we need them. And as the labor market changes, what are the new jobs? What are the new ways that we can get men in that workforce. And if for some reason they decide to be a stay-at-home dad, changing that script that's saying, hey, fatherhood in itself is important, not fatherhood and you have to be the breadwinner because that's actually not what's happening. 40% of homes, the female is the breadwinner, including single parent homes. And there's a lot of statistics showing that, you know, as women, we get satisfaction out of, hey, I can kill it at work, I can be a mom, I can do all these things. Men only think that their worth is what they provide. So Richard provides a lot of data and a lot of ideas about what we can do, what's really going on with porn, how does that impact our, our men, and, and it's actually not as bad as I thought. And he offers real solutions to what's happening here because we, we still have programs to support girls and women, and I want that. but. Simultaneously, it's how do we support our men and boys? Because we need them. We need all of us. And most importantly, the people that it impacts the most are actually downstream. So you'll see upper middle class people be like, oh, I don't see this. But if you start getting into the working class or the lower class, they're getting hammered more than everybody. So the conversation was more rushed than I had hoped. You will hear me sliding in a lot of data and statistics and information because I did want it to come from him. But because from the top of the show, he said he didn't have a lot of time, I tried to get through as much of it as I could because I do think it's an important topic. So I hope you enjoy. Richard Reeves, thank you for coming on the show. I loved your book uh, of Boys and Men. And I want to dive right in because uh, I know there's a lot to cover. And I just really appreciate the fact that you wrote this book. I've been I've been saying, I have three daughters. I know you have three sons. Mm. Yeah. But I've been saying for over 10 years that I feel like, and I'm a product of Title IX. I, I got an athletic scholarship to university. So I'm on every upside of of that movement to empower and elevate and, uh, you know, sort of create that equality for women. Um, but I, I sort of thought, oh, but now it feels like boys going now into men are getting not left behind, but maybe unsupported, um, whether it's in education or in the labor force or, and we're going to talk about it at home. And I used to tell my husband who is pretty masculine, uh, you know, we, I, we have to support our men. We have to support our boys because it's, it's, it's all, it's all of us. It's our civilization. It's our cultures working together. So maybe I know you work, uh, and have a lot of research and are at the Brookings Institute, but maybe you could first explain why you wrote of boys and men, like what was showing up 
for you that you decided that, hey, this is important to undertake? Because it's not easy necessarily in this climate to be like, hey, let's talk about why we have to help our, our boys and men. Yeah. Well, it's not easy. I think partly for the reason that you just hinted at, Gabby, which is that, that the world has changed so quickly. And, and in, in the span of a generation, we've gone from it being totally appropriate to think about, well, why aren't women doing better at college? To thinking, wait, 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 why aren't men doing better at college? Because there's just been this incredible overtaking. And so one of the reasons, I mean, the personal reason is that I've, I have three sons uh, I've raised now. They're all in their 20s. I've raised them both in the UK, where I'm from, and the US, where I'm now a proud citizen. And so it's partly just, you know, I think the challenge that I've had adjusting to this new world and I've and as I've seen them navigate this new world, for mostly wonderful new world, but certainly a world where it's the rules of how to be a man are clearly different, more complex than they were for, say, my father and his generation. And But then also just some of the stats. I mean, like you've, we've talked about higher education, but like in 1972, when Title IX was passed, that you were a beneficiary of, and men were 13 percentage points more likely to get a college degree than women. Now, women are 15 percentage points more likely to get a college degree than men. And our campuses are 60-40 female. And so there's more gender inequality in U.S. higher education today than there was when Title IX was passed. It's just the other way around. And that change has happened so quickly that I just think updating our view of the world is incredibly hard because if in the space of one generation, you've got to go, you've got to go from worrying about gender inequality one way to the other way that right. quickly, almost impossible, I think. And so many of us have, I mean, I have them myself, this kind of instinctive reaction against like, really? Wait, what? Boys and men? Um, but I think the data speak for themselves. And I also think that our failure to rise to this challenge is hurting a lot of our boys and men and creating a dangerous vacuum in our society and a dangerous vacuum in our politics. And I think people listening to this will th will say, oh, well, oh, come on, you know, is that really true? And I, I want to point something out that really felt, you know, the other part of what was important. Certainly men at the top are getting paid more than they've ever been paid. But what people have to remember is what you're talking about is it's actually everyone in the work in the working class and below that they suffer the most. So it isn't about, oh, of course, CEOs and hedge funders. And yes, people have never made, men have never made more money in their life, but you're not talking about that. You're talking about downstream from that, that, you know, two and a half men are more, two and a half more times to commit suicide. 93% of the people in jail are men. 60% um, of the homeless are men. So it's people really getting their head around. It isn't just about this male-female issue. It's really also about how it starts to deeply impact everybody downstream of, right. yes, these few exceptions. So I think that that's a really yeah. other important part of why we need to talk about it. I think that's also one of the reasons why it's hard, though, for people to talk about it if they are in that like upper middle class or professional strata, because you know they look around and they say, oh, I don't see the men struggling very much. In my world, if anything, they say there's still more work to be done, which there is in, some, in, in, many, uh, in many quarters of society. But um, most American men earn less today than most American men did in 1979. So as, as a collective group, we've seen male wages go back. That's an extraordinary economic fact, whereas, you know, Female wages at the median have gone up by at least 30%. And female wages at the top have also gone up very quickly. It's not to say that, they, that they've matched men on average, although we might get into the gender pay gap, which is largely a parenting gap. Um, but, but the pay rises of women at the top have also been extraordinary, especially for white college-educated women. We've just seen this amazing change, such that today 40% of women earn more than the typical man. Right. Now, that's not 50%. If it was 50%, you'd see exactly the same distributions. But 40% earn more than the median man, partly because the median man is worse off than the median man was 40 years ago. So he's actually lost a little bit of ground. Right. Mm -hmm. But in 1979, only 13% of women earned more than the typical man. So it's quite unusual as a woman in 1979 to be earning more than the average man. Whereas now, 40% of women are. And so that's a reflection of class inequality growing. And the danger is 
that we might be busy leaning in, to use Cheryl Sandberg's phrase, but not looking down. And then, of course, if you add race to the equation too, and you look at you look at the trends for black boys and men, I mean, white women out earn not only black women, but they out earn black men by a huge magnitude now. And so, you've got to look at this through those the lens of race and class as well as gender. And I I couldn't help but think when I read the book, um, I had heard once Jordan Peterson sort of discussing union of ideals. I think, and you say it very clearly, it's like. It, men and boys don't have to lose in order for women to to win, and I and I and I really appreciate that because I this this is important because of our our children and what they're stepping into. So let's slide and go right into because mm. the education there's a lot of statistics and a lot of things that have um, that could be improved in the education side of it. Maybe we could just start discussing because mm-hmm. um, I think part of that was it's female friendly. And, and part of those statistics, it feels like launched you into saying, oh, right, I need to write this book. There's data here and, and statistics about how many male teachers there are, just what's going on in the education side of things. Yeah. And I, I appreciate the way you frame that because I think it is incredibly important to get our facts straight. I, I used to write for The Guardian and the founder, of the founding editor of The Guardian, C.P. Scott, famously said, comment is free, but facts are sacred. And I actually think getting these facts on the ground, getting them on the table, and then we can argue about what they mean, et cetera, is important. So we've already mentioned the higher education stats, but if you look into high school, two thirds of the highest GPA scorers are girls, two thirds of the ones with the lowest GPA are boys, uh, and so on all the way through the education system. In the typical school district in the US, girls are almost a grade level ahead in English and have caught up in math. In poor school districts, they're a full grade level ahead in English and ahead in math. Uh, this is at grades four through eight, especially. And so at, at every level, essentially, now there's this huge gender, a huge gender gap across the board. And so the question then is, why? Why is that happening? So yeah, let's lay out the facts, which aren't always perhaps acknowledged, um, but then start to get at, like, why is that happening? And I, I, I've come to believe that there are structural factors at work here, not least because it's happening in every country, advanced economy, every advanced economy, I should say. Right. This is not a quirk of the US education system. Right. Um, and so school, at schools, I think it's a difficult thing to say even now, but schools are on average a bit more female friendly than male friendly. They reward the skills that girls have a bit more than the skills that boys have. There are fewer than one in four teachers now are male and dropping over time. We do less and less applied learning, vocational learning, which tends to favor boys. Again, everything is on average. But if you take an education system that rewards soft skills like turning in your homework and that has very few male teachers in it and that does very little applied learning, learning with your hands as opposed to sitting still in a desk, then it shouldn't really be a surprise that girls are doing and women are doing so much better than boys because all of those things are things that everything else equal are going to advantage girls and women. So um, I see it as in the structure of the education system rather than there being something wrong with the boys. Right? I, I was really struck by the fact that almost one in four boys, 23% at K-12 age, have been diagnosed with a developmental disability in the U.S., and at that point, you have to stop and say, do we really think that one in four of our boys are developmentally disabled, or do we think there's something in the system? Is it, could it possibly be that the system's failing them rather than that they're failing in the system? Right. And the whole notion of redshirting a boy, um, we, we've done it in athletics, and, and just developmentally how different boys and girls are. And, and I, I did think it was interesting because the deeper I, I dove into what you were talking about, it's like we will use statistics to support things for women and girls, but somehow, or I mean gender, and somehow when we are talking about boys, it's like, oh, ge- testosterone and you know, prefrontal cortex, these developmental things, this has nothing to do with it. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about kind of just the brass tacks on the development. It's, it is, it's just different. And I I mean, I I think being a female and like I said, having daughters, but living with a very masculine male, if you, if you pay attention, yes, there's always people who slide over in the middle. I get it, but that it's different. Yes. Yeah, on average. I mean, I think the, the there's a couple of things. One is, I can't remember who said this, but somebody said that so many problems in society stem from our inability to think of an overlapping distribution. 
right? Which is just, which is our inability to recognize that if you've got these differences between two populations on average, then you're going to see there are different patterns. So I don't know, for example, you said you're an athlete, so I don't know how tall you are because we're, we're sitting three. down. Well, I'm 6'3". Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a great example. So you would be, you would be in the top what ten percent of men. Okay, but I have a theory, and this is also why I wanted to talk about it. You know, my husband is an is an athlete as well, and I can tell you that I could go to practice when I I played professional beach volleyball, and you could go to practice, and let's say you're a top three team in your country. And you'd be practicing next to a group of boys that were going to just try to qualify to get into the men's side. I sometimes feel like when you're a female athlete or you're on sort of one sharper end of the stick, you actually know greater the differences. Because if you're supposedly the sharp end of the stick and then you look and you see guys who barely can make it in their sport are bigger, stronger, faster, you know it, you go, yeah, okay, we're different. I mean, it's, it's so obvious. (laughs) It's just obvious to see. I mean, and knowing that, you know, men's upper body strength, 40%, I mean, it goes on and on. Um, that's why I never, it's not that I didn't fight it, but I, I, I saw it in real time all, all the time. But it's like, I mean, those, when you say that to ordinary people, as opposed to people in maybe in political, they go, well, duh. But if you take like height's a great example where like on average, you know, women are whatever it is, however many inches, you know, shorter than men. But yeah. the distributions usually overlap. And so you're a great example of that, yeah. right? You're slightly taller than me. And I'm tall for a guy. And equally, there are guys who are like short and so on. So the distribution, but it doesn't mean there aren't differences on average. Right. And so what that means is on average, more men are going to be able to reach the top shelf in the kitchen than more women. Not all, but on average, right? And so then the question becomes like, which of those differences matter in life? Which of them matter in terms of which jobs we choose? how we behave towards each other, what motivates us. In other words, how much of it becomes about psychology, not just physiology, but psychology. And that gets a much more, that's a much more interesting and of course more controversial subject because then you're into things like sex drive, risk-taking, potential for aggression, uh, more interested, slightly more interested in things than people, et cetera. But right. the thing that's very often lost in that whole debate is where you started this, com- this bit of the conversation, which is the difference in the timing of development. Where there is no controversy at all is that girls hit key milestones in terms of their brain development earlier than boys. Again, even that's on average, but they do because they hit puberty earlier. And so if you take a classroom of 16-year-old girls and 16-year-old boys, they're not the same. I mean, you know that. I know that. I always feel for those boys that are like freshmen and sophomores, and they look like little boys still, and now they're going to school with these women, you know, and you just think you're you're almost scared for them, you know. (laughs) I know. It's like Margaret Margaret Mead said that. She went into a classroom, I think a freshman, and she said, you would think that you'd walked into a class of little boys and young women. And that's exactly how it feels. And it's, of course, that's partly physical because they hit puberty earlier, and so they, they develop physically earlier. But also it hits this bit of the brain the bit of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is the bit of the brain that helps you get a good GPA because it turns in your homework because it remembers it remembers what the GPA is. It, it thinks it thinks maybe I should study for a test, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's just more developed in girls and boys. It develops earlier in girls than boys and most, and it develops at a critical age. So all of those are reasons why education is somewhat more female friendly than male friendly. So I want to move into the labor aspects of this, but you know, one of the solutions is how do we encourage males and even maybe reframe what the job is for male educators? Because I I did hear when I really appreciated this, that let's say you were teaching a class and I was teaching a class that you would see certain behavior from the male students as really not a big deal, where I might really take that as, you know, a huge disciplinary, I need to take some disciplinary action or things like that. And, and just sort of finding ways where you're also working with the male students while they're in these environments that maybe are not as conducive for them. And how, how would we get more men teaching? Mm. Well, that's a great question. I mean, first of all, we've, you know, we have to agree that we need more male teachers. Right. So I, I do think of for step one is to persuade policymakers, institutional leaders, et cetera, that getting more men into teaching is a priority. Right now, no, no right now nobody 
is essentially saying that that's a priority. Then if we achieve that, then the question is is how? And there, there are a few exceptions to that rule that I just mentioned, but certainly it's not a, pro, not a high priority for anybody. The question then is how? And I, I think we're at, we're at a tipping point now where once you get to about 30% of any profession, being more of one gender or the other, it turns, it turns, it gets, once you get below that, it gets harder to get people to go into it. It's just, there seems to be a bit of a tipping point, right? It's like, that's not really for me. I'm, I'm a bit too much of a minority as a, as a sex if I'm below, if like, if I'm, it's one thing to be a, you know, a third, it's another to be like one in 10, which is what elementary school teachers are now male. There's like only one in 10 elementary school teachers are male. And most elementary schools don't have a male teacher. And so if you're a male elementary school teacher, you're a bit of a, you're a bit of a wit. And if you're a male early years teacher, forget it. There are twice as many women flying us military planes as there are men teaching kindergarten as a share of the professions, twice as many. And that strikes me as cause for concern. But whilst we're doing quite a lot to help women into the military, which I agree with, we're doing nothing to encourage more men into early years education. And so I think it does mean scholarships. It does mean having the kinds of programs that we've had to help women into STEM and, and, and women into male professions with scholarships, with subsidies, with aggressive social marketing campaigns. We need male teachers going into high schools to try and persuade the boys that teaching is a career for them. We should raise the pay of teachers as well anyway, but it would also help yeah. because that's definitely a, a bigger issue for men um, going into those professions. There's a bunch we can do, but I actually think that I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be setting ourselves a target to increase the number of men in our in our classrooms. Uh, and, and I would say especially in subjects like English, where men appear to have a disproportionately positive impact, but where they're also the fewest men teaching. Wait, when you say that... Th- what do you mean that they have a, a the impact? I, I what what do you mean? So if you look at um, look at the gender of the teacher and the mm-hmm. outcomes for the students in various subjects, there's quite a big literature showing that for girls, having a female STEM teacher in science, technology, engineering, or math um, is is helpful to them, and it doesn't seem to affect the boys but it seems to help the girls. And those are subjects that have historically been ones that boys have been stronger in than girls. And so it goes a bit against the grain, either culturally and or a little bit biologically um, for girls. So great to have a female teaching that. But it looks like with the many fewer studies that of course have been done on the other side, that it's true for boys in subjects like English to be taught by a male teacher. So there is some evidence that having a male teacher improves the performance of boys in English and doesn't in, in any way affect that of girls. Because again, a bit against the grain, a bit against some of the biology, et cetera. And just speaking perfectly anecdotally, there is no doubt in my mind that I would not have been able to fall in love with the metaphysical poetry of John Donne if my teacher hadn't been Mr. Wyatt, who was a grizzled Korean War veteran who would mm-hmm. have us in, t- he'd have working class 16 year old boys in tears reading metaphysical poetry from 400 years ago. That's a tough thing to do. And I have no doubt in my mind that my love of words and of writing was hugely affected by the fact that, it, that, that a man was teaching me to do it. It's not to say it couldn't have been a woman, but right. those well, subjects, that, the matter and subject. Hmm? And it also gives you as a young man yeah. permission. If you're right. looking to explore these sort of um, uncomfortable, like emotional or sensitive areas, because as young men, you're co- sort of culturally told to be tough and all these other things right. that it does give permission. I have found, again, I, I, I'm a, I've been with my husband for 27 years and he is hi- like hyper-masculine, but he is the sensitive and the heart of our whole family. And I have seen it over and over again in military uh, men that we train with or other things. It feels like people, and, and we'll get into toxic masculinity, that phrase is, you know, I, I heard once uh, in uh, in a book I was reading, uh, Natural Born Heroes, to, to be a, a hero, one must be truly compassionate, right? And so people have gotten it wrong about what masculinity is. I've always viewed it as it's helpful. My word is my bond. Um, you know, all of these other protectiveness, sort of these wonderful traits that we can all benefit from. But from the most masculine I've ever, men I've met, I find them to actually be the most sensitive. And and I think people don't maybe realize it 
or they've forgotten that, or they, you know, want to throw it out as something that it's only aggression and it's all these things. And, and that has not been my experience at all. Um, Hmm. and, uh, I, yeah. And I want, it's another false, it's another false choice, isn't it? It's seen as another trade-off of, you know, zero sum to be masculine is not to be sensitive, but the opposite is very often true. I think so. And, and anytime you, especially, you know, people who maybe been in very life-threatening situations, military, I find them to be the most sort of really have that maybe there's a different perspective or appreciation for things, or if there is a high level of, uh, aggression or violence that someone has experienced or danger, maybe it sort of evokes this other side of appreciating and, you know, tenderness and, and love. And, and I have, I've just seen that so much that, um, and I see again with my with my own husband, and and I, I just think it's so important. Speaking about to- toxic masculinity, and b- before we move out of education and go into labor, you make a very uh, important distinction that you talk about. You know, immature and mature masculinity should be the reference versus toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I prefer that framing. I, I've I've really come to dislike the term toxic masculinity. Uh, it used to be a very well-defined term in academia, right? a, a, some psychologists in academia. So a few mentions in some obscure journals till 2016, then it broke out because of various things, Donald Trump, Me Too movement, et cetera. Yeah. And it just became like, I was looking at, like, it's been blamed, COVID, climate change, nuclear proliferation, the recession, they've all been blamed on toxic masculinity. And so it's just become a catch-all term for behavior from men that you don't approve of. <laughs> oh, that's toxic masculinity. And at, at yeah. that point, it's just not serving any any useful function as a kind of term of any precision. And in the meantime, it's just pissing a lot of men off and young men, especially, um, who don't really appreciate the location of the word toxic that close to the word masculinity. Because even though people say, oh, no, 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 I don't. Of course, there's good masculinity. You know, I'm talking about the non-toxic. Then, then they can't then they really struggle to say what that is. And it's yeah. it's game over at that. It's game over at that point. So I think the term itself is really toxic. And what we're actually getting at is something more like the difference between immature and ma- mature masculinity. It is this, like, every, like everyone who's been a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old boy, 16-year-old boy, 17-year-old boy, 18-year-old, or who's raised them, knows a bit about what that's like. And in terms of like what's going on in your body, what's going on in your mind, it's a turbulent time as it is for girls too but in a different way for boys but you learn you learn to moderate you learn to temper you learn to channel you learn how to conduct yourself and i actually had this quote i think it's in the book from jf roxborough who is the headmaster of stowe school in england that public uh, this is 100 years old this quote he said i'm trying to turn out men who will be acceptable at a dance and invaluable in a shipwreck and someone asked me the other day, could you update that? I said, actually, I try. And I thought, no, actually, that's everybody knows what that phrase means. Acceptable at a dance means I've learned how to conduct myself well in society. Mm-hmm. I know how to treat women. I know how to behave. I know what to say, what not to say. I know how to take no for an answer graciously. I know how to, to dance. I know. But also, if the ship starts sinking, what if the equivalent is, I know what to do then too. And so I still think that captures a version of masculinity, albeit 100 years uh, old, that is, that is very important, but it's mature masculinity that we're after, not, non, not non-toxic, because then you're defining masculinity against toxicity rather than in a positive way. Right. It's like putting dye in the water and being like, oh no, well, you know, put the genie back in the bottle. It's like, once you phrase yeah. it that way, you're always backpedaling. It's I'm curious over, yeah. if because the labor market has shifted, is any of this connected to also, I'm just curious on how men also are relating to other men. Is there parts of that that you found in your research where even that has sort of impacted um, young men's ability to develop, let's say, a mature um, masculinity? Because even now, uh, coaches or teachers, they can't be really as tough on young, you know, as young people, there's a sort of a lot more protocol. Um, you know, Mm. I wondered if any of that has also maybe lent itself where, you know, sort of maybe when you were growing up, 
if you were going to take on or learn a new task with a group of older men, they would give it to you. I mean, you know, if that's not how you should hold your shovel, that's not the way you, you know, whatever it is that you're learning. I wondered if, if that's impacted how young men are also developing. Yeah. I think that, um, the, the relational aspect of development is hugely important here. And I think to just to take a step back, it seems pretty clear that masculinity, mature masculinity is more socially constructed than mature femininity. It's not that they aren't both slightly socially constructed, but there's a sort of biological reality to mature fem- and, and there are rites of passage for yeah. girls and women that are just very much more obvious, more rooted in the body, clearly related to fertility and motherhood, et cetera. Whereas it's just, that's just less true for men. <clears throat> and so absent that, we've always had to construct ways to, to mature, ways to have, to have rites of passage, to have institutions and spaces within which that intergenerational male learning can take place. And I agree with you that those, those spaces have been weakened. And so back to the school example, one of the reasons why I think it's important to have male teachers is because they're disproportionately likely to be coaches. Uh, now, there's all kinds of reasons you get into for that, but actually by having fewer men, you've got fewer coaches. And the role and, and the, the iconic position of coach in American culture is not accidental, especially for boys who maybe don't have a strong male role model in their home or in their home life. The coach can become hugely important. And there are other institutions that have done that too. And I'll give one very personal example, but it's topical, which is the scout movement. So I came up through the scouting movement. I then became a scout leader myself. And my boys came up through the scouting movement. Um, and that was clearly a space within which some of this intergenerational learning and socialization could take place. But Boy Scouts of America just went co-ed. Uh, and so it's not a male-only space anymore. Meanwhile, Girl Scouts of America remains female-only. Uh, and it's just had a huge uh, investment from Mackenzie Scott, actually, because she she made the point that these girl-only spaces to do STEM, to develop relationships, to learn how to be a woman are useful. And I'm like, I agree. Mm-hmm. But what about boys? Yeah. Do we we don't think that we need any space any spaces um, that are appropriate for boys to learn? And so that's another example. I think we've become very shy of the idea of having these spaces where men can develop these skills, especially from from older men. And, and the, the, the decision by Boy Scouts of America to rebrand as BSA in the hope that one day we'll forget what the B ever stood for. I have come to think that's a really big mistake. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It feels like there's a, a, you know, like an overcorrection that, but like you said, if we get below, you know, this 30% or this number, then is there no coming back from it? Where after we've, mm. you know, and again, I I am a person who has greatly benefited from the support of of women and girls, and I and I believe that. But in looking at the whole landscape, you go, oh wait, is the overcorrection going to make it that we then can't pull it back and say, hey, let's talk about our men, let's talk about supporting them, let's create these spaces, and also let's celebrate masculinity, let's let's celebrate all the the wonderful traits. This podcast is brought to you by Babbel. I don't know about you, but every time I travel, I kick myself that I haven't spent more time learning whatever language it is in the place that I'm visiting. It's like you want to connect with the people in a real way. Well, immersion, you know, that's the best way. But most of us can't move somewhere and, and you know, live there and learn the language, even though that's number one. But number two is with Babbel. And the reason that is, is first of all, they have it's really quick. They've got 10 minute lessons and, but they're handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. But what I love about it is it's designed by real people for real conversations. It's like, listen, we all want to know, like talk about food and directions and things like that. And Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real life situations and delivered with conversation-based teaching. So you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. And that's the other thing I love is just combining that because you think, okay, maybe using a trip that you have planned or getting together with family somewhere, using that as your motivation to get going. And you don't have to pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that maybe don't really even help you, you know, speak a new language. 
In fact, a study showed, there was one study, they did studies at Yale, Michigan State, that Babel is better. One study found that using Babel for 15 hours, that's nothing, is equivalent to a full semester at college. They've got over 16 million subscribers sold, plus all of Babel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. So here's the incredible offer for a special limited-time deal for our listeners right now. You can get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash Gabby. So to get 50% off at babbel.com slash Gabby, that's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash Gabby. Some rules and restrictions may apply. Can you just share a little bit about the labor market? Um, mm. Because it it is changing for men for a number of reasons, from manual yeah. labor yeah. and from other things. Again, it's I mean the point you made earlier that this is about class is really it, mm-hmm. it doubly true here. I m- mentioned the fact that most men earn less than they, than most men did in seventy nine, but the men at the top are doing well. But also just the employment effect. So we've seen about an eight percentage point drop in labor force participation among men over the last few decades. But the biggest drop has been among men with less education. So among men with a high school diploma, um, but no more edu- but no more education than that, one in three are out of the labor market. That's ten million men. Uh, and so for that group, uh, when you de- when you uh, only two thirds are in the labor market at all. That's a very, very different world. And that's also the men who are struggling in all kinds of other aspects of life. And so you're seeing a labor market that partly because of free trade and automation and just the shift away from a more industrial economy has had a disproportionate effect on men. It's not because women have come into the labor market or because women are doing better. That's, that's zero-sum lump of labor, bad economic thinking. It's not that. It is just that at the same time as women have succeeded in the labor market, men have faced independently faced these big shocks from more trade with China, more shift towards automation, and the move away from the kinds of jobs that men used to be able to do with relatively modest levels of education and still get decent pay. That world has gone, and that's benched, that has benched millions of men, and we haven't done a good enough job yet of helping those men to adjust to the new labor market. What, is, what would that look like? Like if... If you could sort of, I mean, we, is it scholarships for like vocational schools and things like that? Like, what would that look like that we can sort of redirect them somewhere? Yeah, I mean, there are still quite a lot of jobs where, which are still dominated by men that would require some post, uh, post high school training um, but, and can pay decent wages. And so that's things like HVAC, uh, things like plumbing, electrician, et cetera. Uh, so you do. You certainly need to get some technical training for that. You probably need to get at least an associate's degree or a post some kind of uh, certificate. Mm-hmm. So you need a certification for those, um, but you don't have to go and do a four-year college degree. And so much more investment in those, much more investment in apprenticeships. The U.S. is at the bottom of the international league table for apprenticeships, and again, ninety percent of apprentices are men. And so, like that would really help men to get into some of those jobs. But at the same time. We also we have to recognize that many of the jobs of the future are not going to be in those areas that have been the ones that are traditional male jobs have come from. A lot of the jobs of the future are in what I call the heel professions, health, education, administration, and literacy skills. And there you're seeing a lot of jobs coming in areas like healthcare more broadly, nursing, social work, psychology. And these are all professions that are becoming progressively more female dominated. So it's back to this tipping point issue, which is even as we've seen the desegregation of the labor market one way in a lot of professions, not all. So for example, deep sea fishing <laughs> remains very male. Uh, telephone wire what, repairers. What a surprise. <laughs> very male. I know. And I talked to, you know, I talked to my very liberal junior colleagues about deep sea fishing. And one of them said, yeah, you can have that one. And so, like, there, there isn't a huge campaign to get more women out on deep sea fishing boats. But Richard, even that tone 
of, oh, you can have that one. I don't think what you're saying is even from a, like, I think we've managed to politicize everything and say, instead of saying, how do we as a group, as a collective, help each other all move forward? Because we're in a changing right. world with the world works differently. The way people can make a living is different. The way people are married is different. Like it's just changing. And, um, and so it's interesting where you, you know, you talked about, you know, we've, we've changed the script. Technology has changed the script. Women sort of, we we're finding our bearings and you're saying that men are just out there kind of improvising and it's right. really, really difficult. So do you think it also would be about selling these jobs? For example, we're going through, I think people are struggling quite a bit. You hear about mental health all the time, having more male psychologists, for example, because if yeah, I'm a 15 yeah. year old boy, as much as I'm sure I'm really interesting and cool, I would probably rather talk to you. But how, so is it yeah, about I, how we're marketing these jobs to men? Yeah, partly, but it's also back to this point that just if you it, just watch the numbers, once if a pre profession mm -hmm. becomes too dominated, by one sex or one gender or the other, it just gets harder to persuade. The barriers are just higher. Psychology is a great example. So we only have to go back to 1980 when psychology was uh, actually slightly more men than women. In the last 10 years, the share of men in psychology has dropped from 39% to 29%. And among psychologists under the age of 30, 5% are male. And so in the space of very short period of time, psychology has gone from being a, a pretty gender equal profession, in fact, if anything, slightly male oriented, to an overwhelmingly female dominated one. That's just happened, right, over time. And so what that tells us is, first of all, there's nothing about psychology intrinsically, which means that it's a women's profession, right? It's not a women's job to be a psychologist, or at least it wasn't in the 80s. So like when Ronald Reagan was president, half our psychologists were men. But so has some, what's, what, was it a women's profession then? I don't think so. But now you get to a point where it's very hard to persuade men. Like I know some of my friends' sons are in psychology classes a lot, and they're the only man in the psychology class. Almost all the faculty, you know, they're moving. And so it's just, it's really hard to persuade these guys that psychology is a profession for them mm -hmm. when everyone they look around them is female. And that's a problem because for the reason you identified, you're a 15-year-old guy, when you know, when any of my sons have needed uh, help, mental health support, oh, it, it had to be a guy. I mean, it, it could be different for it had to be a guy. When I when I needed help, it was a guy. Now it wasn't. I actually tried female therapists, but the stuff I was dealing with, like, it, I can't. It was. It, it had to be a guy. And mm -hmm. the, so what that means is that if you allow these professions to become like scarce uh, of men. I talked to a lot of some male psychologists and they all say almost to a man that they have, they just can't meet the demand for their services because there's so many people ringing them up. Very often it's mums, by the way. This is women calling up male psychologists to saying, can you see my son or maybe my brother? Right. And they're like, no, I can't. I've got, a, I, I, no, my waiting list is like a year. They're overwhelmed. And, and so that's a great example of a, like a win, 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 because we, there's, more jobs in psychology. We're short of psychologists and we need psychologists to be able to be evaluated. So we, have, we need male psychologists. But again, as far as I'm aware, nobody is paying any attention to this issue. There are no campaigns. There's no, there's no nonprofit money. You know, neither Mackenzie Scott nor Melinda Gates or anybody else is pouring money into scholarships to get men into psychology. Nobody. So as, as just a kind of a bolt on to that idea. It, all these transitions that young women go through, men go through puberty and then graduation and then moving into adulthood. What is it that we as families and as communities, you know, do you have, because I know you've thought about it, is what could we do better hmm. to help them through these these not only rites of passage, but very difficult transitions for any person to go through. 
Well, I think the first thing is to is what not to do. And we've already talked about toxic masculinity and not framing not framing the task here as learning all the bunch all the things you shouldn't do and shouldn't say and don't be like this, right? So, and seeing it instead of seeing some of these differences as positive and so and being really 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 with compassion, no eye rolling, no, oh, that's just toxic masculinity. No, why can't you be more like your sister? Either implicitly or explicitly, never should it be why can't you be more like your sister. And there's a bit of a cultural thing around that. And for fathers and for community leaders anyway, to, un to, to unapologetically model a mature form of masculinity, which is about helping people manage risks, it is about leadership, it is about recognizing that you can be, you can be strong you know, and have all this vulnerability along with it too, um, that there's a degree of risk-taking involved, there's a degree of physicality, uh, again, on average, um, for boys than there is for men. And communicate, but also this is back to the point about psychology. I, I was listening to some psychologist the other day talking about walking therapy, where he initiated this way of, of doing therapy with these young where they went out for a walk because he found that sitting down with them, right, didn't work. And what we actually know is that men communicate more effectively shoulder to shoulder than face to face. And this happened with my kids. My boys would come home from school and my wife would sit opposite them across the, uh, the breakfast bar, sit opposite them with them. How was your day? I don't know. Whatever. What happened? I don't know. And they'd literally shut down. And I said to her, it's because you're in their face. Mm -hmm. Later on, I'd be driving somewhere with them or video gaming with them or doing something or watching a game with them, watching a sporting event with them. And they'd say, oh, this, this really weird thing happened at school today. And this girl says, oh, okay. And it came out, you know, we're playing, we're doing things. And and that's fine. Like we we have different communication styles. So if you're a mom, or you're a, any in any kind of role, just recognize right that mm. they're not going to communicate with you in the same way, perhaps that your girls or your women will, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah, right. Know know your audience, and and try. Yeah. I'm with you on on that. It's uh, and they'll take little kids and they'll color and do stuff. They're not going to sit with a little kid and be like, so did any? You know, it's like they know. I mean, everybody will feel more comfortable in a certain way. So let's talk about um, home life husbands and mm. um and fathers because this also is interesting um you you talked a lot about that the two things that would come up a lot that men would write um before they would or say or use the, the words before they would commit suicide was useless and worthless mm. and there's something interesting where we think if women aren't around or families have to have that settling sort of impact on men that they're just going to become like a bunch of hoodlums but in fact they've retreated quite a bit it it isn't and i i know you said that this was actually quite a big surprise that no one would have yes. guessed that everybody retreated it that everyone thought they'd be going around the you know the neighborhoods with sticks and hitting garbage cans because they weren't in a calming environment but you're saying yes. hey worse they're retreating well not worse, not worse, probably. Well, I, uh, I always, I always, I feel like I can deal with the energy of like outward. It's when people feel like they're giving up or they're, you know, at least the other feels like there's still a fight in there. Yeah. But, um, but the cost of that is much higher levels of crime. Yeah. Much higher levels of violence, much, much less safe. No, I'm, I'm, I, I'm sure you prefer feeling a bit safer walking along the street than you True. would if there were you know, bands bands of marauding men. <laughs> so I, I think different, but, but, it, but, but it, it is a surprise and it may have quite a lot to do with screens. It may have quite a lot to do with the internet. Uh, and, and it may turn out that actually the internet has, although it has huge problems for men, it's also saved us to some extent. There's, so the counterfactual you have to run is a world mm. where you've got so many men who feel dislocated and lost, and there's no internet, there's no video gaming, and there's no porn, just to be really blunt about it, right? Yeah. Is, what would they be doing instead? Now, maybe they'd all be volunteering at the local, local soup kitchen and being crossing ward guards or better fathers. I hope that would be true. But there is an alternative world where they would not be checking out, but they'd be acting out. Yeah. But I, I sometimes feel like the technology is part of the reason why they're able to check out. I think if we yeah. still lived in a world where we had to just kind of all be together and we'd yeah. have time, it would be a different situation. But I, I really yeah. understand your, your point. I think, okay, let's talk about um, porn uh, because I know um, 
as having daughters, we're more concerned with social media. I think people with sons often are alarmed about porn. But you you sort of really dug into it and said, yes, okay, it it exists and people are using it, but it's it might be surprisingly less than people think. Yeah, uh, I mean, actually, I had a whole chapter on on sex generally, which didn't make it into the book. Um, but I did keep some of the work that why, I done around. Why porn. didn't it make Why didn't it make it into the book? <laughs> so, it, was, would uh, it keep us from all the other important information? Yeah. Yeah, um, my uh, my very very wise agent and friend said, if you have a chapter on sex, nobody will care about your ideas for technical high schools. Uh, and I I'm sure that's right um, because it's and it and also so that's the kind of one reason I just think it, people it's just it's so it's so visceral it's it's such a shiny object that it's you know it would distract from others but also mm. because I was determined in the book in the in the ways that we've just been discussing to try and be quite solutions oriented rather than just cultural commentary. There's a lot of cultural commentary out there um, with, with views informed by their own experience, their anecdotes, et cetera. And they go from kind of woe is me to sex positivity to polygamy's great to porn's terrible to whatever. So the internet's full of, of that kind yeah. of commentary. And hey, I didn't feel particularly well equipped to to, in, to intervene in that debate, but secondly, because like it's not clear to me where the policy lands, with one exception, which is perhaps around porn. But I, but I did look at the porn stuff because I think it's being used as a as something of a stick with which to beat young men, especially. So there's a little bit of a sense here, it's like, well, if they didn't spend all their time in the basement smoking weed and looking at porn, like, okay, um, let's look at why they might. Be spending time on porn. Partly, it's just algorithmically designed to grab them by the testicles, uh, grab us by the testicles. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say them, um, and because pornography is about as old as human civilization, as far as we know, um, and so it's nothing new here. It's just the internet has kind of just weaponized it in a way that's totally new. So you've got to look at it. The concern is less with the majority of men using porn who use it occasionally and for very pretty short periods of time that's the norm it's those who become addicted um like any addiction can be a problem or and this is a bit harder to measure and it comes back to your earlier point gabby about displacing other activities like does it displace in real life activity and the thing that i've always worried about with my own boys more generally is less are they looking at porn because the answer to that question is do you have an internet connection Right. If the if the answer is yes, then the other answer is also yes. <laughs> or old um, magazines, for that matter. I mean, you oh, know, yeah. I mean, it used to be different. Like, um, it's it's the how much how much are they and is it stopping them going out on dates? Is it stopping them asking a girl out? Is it stopping them from getting out there in the real world and and trying to have real relationships? And as long as it isn't doing that, then I think we can keep our moral concerns under under some wraps. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it is, and I think in some cases it is, then it's a problem. So it's like all it's like everything. It's just a question of what's the what's the line between problematic use and and use so i don't know if the analogy holds but let's say wine you know what's the difference between a glass of wine a night and two bottles a night and not being able to get through the day without having to kind of drink there's a big difference and i would say there's probably something similar about pornography this is not a popular view on either the left or the right by the way but i but i i think that the moral panic around it is not supported by the evidence so Richard, as, as I know, we start to wind down, I, I, I would be remiss if we don't really talk about, you know, husbands and, and fathers. And, and so, mm-hmm. you know, 40% of, um, households, the female is the breadwinner. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we have, you talk a lot about s- sort of, um, the complex self complexity. My husband always jokes with me. He's like, you can give birth. And I used to, I'm like, what does that mean? But in a way, you know, I could, I can, and I have made money. I have a family and I get different things from all of these things. Hmm. But for men, it's still sort of like my ability to provide is still a big part of the narrative. And maybe you could just sort of, you have, you have some really wonderful just ideas around helping men redefine this, whether it's a direct the value of directly parenting, you know, you, it used to be, okay, father parented through the mother. Now you're saying, Hey, listen, they're mm. getting that, that sort of internal reward system redefined for men. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, it comes back to what you were mentioning a moment ago around you know, suicides and being useless and, and worthless and, and this sense of the, of the internalizing problem as opposed to externalizing, right? That was the conversation we just had. And like, I think it's, it's noteworthy that suicide rates among men have increased by 50% and they are between three and four times harder, higher for men than for women. But homicide rates have almost halved in the last few decades. And so like, a, the typical man today is significantly less likely to be violent towards another human being than even, even, even 30 years ago, like about half as likely, but is significantly more likely to take his own life. Uh, and so it's a classic example of what you just took. So that's the, that's the, you know, I'm taking your side of the argument now, which is like the trouble of retreat, the worry about going, or, or opioids, you know, you die because you're on your own or you take your own life. And I do think that's about the sense that if, because we haven't expanded the role of fatherhood and of men in the way we have of, women, of motherhood and women, maybe we have expanded it. So there are more, as you just said, more ways to be a woman now than there were 40 years ago. There also need to be more ways to be a man. Um, and in particular, as a father, it's important, I think, that the message we send culturally and through policy and through our incentives is that dads matter, period. Not as breadwinners. Not as protected, like great if they can do that, and they should do that when they can. But it's not as if if they can't, given that so many men are struggling economically, and given that the reality is that you know in a third of marriages now the wife is earning more than the, the man, and that's in the married couples. Um, that's and as you said, forty percent of uh, breadwinners, including single parents, are female. That's the world as it is. So if if we continue to stick to a model of masculinity and fatherhood, which is contingent on being the main breadwinner, we're in real trouble because that is not a role that many men are going to be able to fill now and nor should it be. It's potentially hugely liberating that we can start to share this stuff, but it means that fatherhood matters independent of the relationship with the mom. Dads matter to their kids, regardless of the relationship with the mom. I mean, it's better if they can be with the mom, it looks like from the evidence, but let's be realistic about this. Uh, and I think that these men who effectively get benched by society Mm. are the ones who've absorbed this message that if they can't live up to the old masculine standard, then they're useless or worthless because we haven't provided a new masculine standard against which they can compare themselves. And that's the, that's the, the chasm that so many men are falling into. Yeah. And you, and you talked about, you know, sort of liberating fatherhood from marriage, like, you know, mm. sort of really people taking on the importance of that role that it, it does have value. So in wrapping up, we need to get more men in it, education. Mm -hmm. How can, how can we get sort of support? Cause you know, it's like people you've said people's jobs every day is to get out there and sort of support women and be in, you know, find ways to further women's agendas, which is awesome, but we need more of that for men. And then what other, am I missing, what are the other, there's other things that you think we can do to help solve some of this. So get them into these um, heal jobs. Heal jobs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. throw some money at that. Yeah. Are you hopeful? Um, I am hopeful that we're having a better conversation about this now than I think we were four or five years ago. I am hopeful that people are really receptive to the fact that there is a thing here. This is a real thing. And as long as you say, we can think two thoughts at once, this mm -hmm. is not about in any way letting up on rights for women and girls. It's just about equal flourishing. People go, people breathe and they go, okay, good. All right. Yeah. I'm on board with that. Right. If you were going to say there's a war on, you know, war on boys and men, I've got to stop. Right. I've got to give up my loser. And I got to tell you the number of very, very liberal middle-aged moms, moms, I'm in my early fifties, about my age, um, very, very liberal in many cases, strongly feminist, like you benefited hugely from the work of previous generations of women, worried sick about their sons, mm -hmm. worried about their brothers or their cousins, in some cases their husbands, to just like, this is happening. This yeah. is happening in real life, real name. And so if people feel they have permission to talk about it, I'm really hopeful. And there mm -hmm. are some signs like Washington State is considering a bill to create a commission on boys and men 
which would just every day, you'd have people whose job it is to say, let's look at what's happening to boys and men. There are similar bills in other states. Florida has this fatherhood initiative. This stuff, I think, I, I, maybe I'm a born optimist. And so it may just be I'm seeing it. But my sense is that, that this problem has been around for long enough now that enough people want to tackle it yeah. and take it seriously. And that the consequences of not doing so, just in terms of human suffering, leave everything else aside, are becoming clearer by the day. That's it. It's just, for me, it's always about humanity. And I have three daughters and I want them, and I message for them to go out and kick ass in the world. But I, I don't need it to be at the sake of the sons of the world. And also, I don't really feel like neutering. As a strong female, quite frankly, I don't, I'm not interested in, in neutering our males. Um, that doesn't seem no. like the way to go. Um Richard Reeves, the book is of boys and men. I really thank you for your time. I will end this though with one fact, just so that we're showing that we're responsible, that um, the the big place where there's a gap is women, and I'm an entrepreneur as well, is they only mm -hmm. get 2% of the VC yes. money. And that's, we can leave that for another time, but I didn't want to act like, um, you know, it's perfect, no, perfect everywhere. No. But I, I'm, I do, I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah. I don't know if I said this in the book or not, but my wife is yeah. trying to raise money. And so, yeah, yeah. so that I get reminded of that statistic on a nightly basis. And yeah. it's just great evidence. It's like two things at once. Yes. You can worry about that and about that. We don't have to choose between the, the huge efforts we still have to do in, for women in VC, for example, or women in tech or women in politics. Like the US still hasn't had a female president, which at this point is just an embarrassment. Right, yeah. I think our, 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 I think as a new American that the the feeling we'll have when we elect a female president will just be one of huge relief, um, because it's just this it's becoming extraordinary that we haven't you know the UK has had three female prime ministers by now. I'm not saying they're all great, but we've had three, and it, it doesn't yeah. like the fact of their gender just it is not an issue anymore. And so, is there more work to be done for women and girls, especially sure. the apex of society? You bet. Sure. Is that is that in some way in conflict with doing stuff for these suffering, yeah. struggling boys and men? No. And anybody who asks us to choose between the two is not serving us and is not serving our kids and is not serving our culture. And I think you're the right person to start this conversation. So I appreciate it. And um, I, uh, I look forward to seeing us work it out just a, you know, a little bit better. All right. One relationship at a time. Thank you for having me Thank on, you. Gabby. I appreciate it. Bye. Aloha. All right. Take care. Bye-bye now. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. Stay tuned for a bonus episode coming this Thursday where I go deeper on one of the topics that really resonated with me. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at gabbyreese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.